Hi listeners, I'm your host, Rebecca Kelly, and welcome back to The Station, a fiction podcast about a girl named Ida Shepard who is trapped on board a dying space station called The Delta. Now, Ida was born on The Delta, she was raised there, and now she's all alone, trying to escape before the aging spacecraft falls into the Earth's atmosphere. Now, through sheer tenacity, she was able to reestablish a long-forgotten line of communication with the surface after a devastating world war left the world's satellite communications dead. Ida reaches an engineer named Ale Bacchus at NASA, and together they come up with a dizzyingly dangerous plan for Ida to escape the Delta on board an old Soyuz capsule that's docked at the space station. If you're just joining the podcast, welcome. This podcast is me reading my novel, The Station. If you're interested in purchasing the book, it is available on Amazon as an ebook or a paperback. I also run a very active uh, Bookstagram account on Instagram. So if you're into learning about all things books and writing and reading, take a peek over there and join my online community. All the important links will be in the show notes of this podcast. And we've come to the end. If you've been with me since the beginning, you'll know that this was a long and lesson-filled adventure in podcasting. I'm so grateful to all my wonderful listeners for tuning in. And this will be the final episode of this season of The Station. Because we are going to finish off the book today with chapters 51 through 55. So on that same note, this is actually not the end of the podcast. There will be a season two, and it happens to be me reading my newest novel, The Continuation of Edith's Story. It's called The Surface, and it will be available on Amazon, hopefully on April 20th. That is the tentative pub date as of now. But of course, follow me on Instagram to get more updates on that release. My Instagram handle is Rebecca J. Kelly Author. And I will be reading that book here as well for some bonus content for those who prefer reading in a podcast format. Okay, enough of the business. Let's get back to the story. Here are the final five chapters of The Station. Chapter 51 Nick's Unit 3348, Service Log Entry Number 664533. Date, 22-588. GMT. Internal Note. NASA sent a new plan. I believe they've gotten it right this time. I will do one final task to keep Ida safe during reentry. The solar cell arrays on the Delta station are equipped with standard-sized control-moment gyroscopes, or CMGs. Inside each CMG is a spinning rotor and gimbal, which, when tilted in a certain direction, causes torque. This torque is strong enough to move the station substantial distances, especially if they are all used at the same time. As per Ale's request, I initiated the program to start the CMGs spinning, It can be done via ground link communication with mission control, but it's faster if I do it directly from the Delta computers, and time is of the essence. It takes approximately three minutes for them to spin up to full velocity. Each CMG needs to be pointed at a specific angle in order to get the maximum amount of torque. 
Enough torque should push the delta into the atmosphere within six minutes of the initial spin. NASA provided angle calculations, and I ran them through my systems to check for errors. The angles are correct. This action will bring the delta down into the southern Pacific Ocean and away from almost all populated areas. Ida will continue ahead of it and land over New Mexico, as she was scheduled to do, in approximately 34 minutes. I've lost communication with the Soyuz, but I still have a link to the ground. The CMGs are almost ready. Outgoing comlink. Ale, are you there? Incoming comlink. Yes, Nix, I'm here. Response. I brought the CMGs up to full power and am now set to move them into the correct position. Do you agree with that move? Incoming comlink. Yes, that's what we need you to do. Thank you. How are you doing, Nix? Response. I am doing just fine and dandy. And thank you for asking. I appreciate the friendly gesture. I have a final thought to share with you. I realize that these are my final moments, and I just wanted to let you know how beautiful your planet is. I don't believe I've ever noticed before, but the view is spectacular. Incoming comlink. I'll bet it is, Nix. You're a lucky man for getting to see that. Response. You called me a man. That makes me happy, Ale. If you could see me now, I am smiling. I also got the pleasure of knowing Millicent before she passed away. She was a beautiful person. She made me. If I could cry, I would have cried when she died. Incoming calm link. I'm sure she appreciated you too, Nix. You stayed up there with her daughter after all. Response. Ah, yes, beautiful Ida. I was there when she was born, and I watched her grow. She is the very best friend anyone could ask for. I hope you will agree, Ale. Incoming comlink. I agree, Nix. Response. Good. I know Ida will be in your capable hands now that she has left mine. I dearly wish I could hear her voice again. But I suppose that is not meant to be. Thank you, Ale, for letting me have a few final words with you. You treat me like a real person, and I appreciate that more than you know. Incoming comlink. Nix, I'm happy to have known you. You gave your life so that Ida could survive, and that makes you better than many of the humans living on the surface. Take care, Nix, and God bless. Response? 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 End log transmission. Signal failure. Chapter 52 I am alone, staring down at the beautiful swirling white cloud tops below. I'm counting to pass the time, trying to keep fear and nerves at bay. Right now the Soyuz is tilted in such a way that one window points to the black universe and the other window points to the brilliant earth. It's an angle I've never seen before totally unlike any of the views on the Delta. After Nix released the clamps, I blew the explosive bolts that held the Soyuz to the bulkhead. Those little guys gave me a heck of a push. They sounded like someone driving nails into the side of the ship with a sledgehammer. Once I was about 200 meters from the Delta, they had me light up the primary engine of the Soyuz to put me into my reentry corridor. I'm now the furthest I've ever been away from my home. Ida? I hear Ale's voice come through the calm leak. His voice sounds clearer now, almost like he's in the next room speaking through an open doorway. 
Yes, I'm here, I say. Just a few more minutes before we lose radio communication. How are you? He asks. In my mind, I can see his expression. I close my eyes to get a clearer view of him. He has dark, curly hair and dark eyebrows. I imagine his eyebrows rolling up to meet the small smile lines in his forehead as he asks me how I'm doing. I smile thinking about him, knowing that if I survive the next 20 minutes, I might get to see him in person. I'm great, Ale. I am doing great, I say. That's good to hear, he says. I thought you might like to know that we're tracking the delta over the Pacific, just behind you. If you want, you can probably catch sight of it before it's gone for good. I turn to the window, but I don't see the horizon because the window is facing down toward the ocean. I'll have to rotate the Soyuz using the altitude thrusters. I touch the screen panel in front of me and punch in the proper codes to roll the craft. I can hear the chemical thrusters pushing pressurized gas outside the vessel. It's hissing next to the metallic skin of the Soyuz. As the vessel rolls, the Delta comes into view through the small bulkhead window. I'm strapped into the middle seat, so I can't get right by the window, but I crane my neck up and out to get a better view. It's interesting how you feel when you leave the only home you've ever known. I've looked through the archives and seen news articles and read books about people who were abducted and held captive for years inside someone's basement or backyard. And I wonder if this is the same feeling they got when they were finally rescued. When they finally see that place where they were trapped for so long, drifting off into the distance behind them. Nostalgia is an interesting thing. A wistful affection for the past. A sentimental yearning. I can't really say that I feel sentimental, but I do feel a deep yearning and an affection for what I have left behind. I can see it clearly out the window a little world of its own hovering just above the horizon. The last few weeks I've been so busy preparing to leave, I never noticed how close it was getting to Earth. But now, from a distance, it looks so tiny and vulnerable, like the Earth is about to reach up and swallow it whole in a fire-breathing display of superiority. As the thought of fire passes through my mind, the delta starts to spark. It's not sparking like you might expect a flint to spark into a campfire. It's a different kind of spark. It looks like the ship is wobbling and the reflective metal surface is spinning bits of light all across the universe. I look down at my hands and hold them up in front of me. I can see the flashes of light flying over them. I move as close to the window as my straps will allow and see that the delta is, in fact, wobbling. It's gyrating back and forth a small disk of movement from where I sit, but it's there, nonetheless, pulsating through the upper reaches of the atmosphere. I can't actually see the station windows because it's too far away from me, but in my mind, I see Nick staring out the windows of the VP, holding up his hand, smiling his Iron Man grin at me through thick glass. He would, I think, be looking out. He was so much more than a robot, after all. He would want to see the fireworks as much as anyone else would. I wonder if Nix feels fear. I'm almost certain he doesn't feel it the way I feel it. But then again, nobody feels fear the way I feel it, right? Fear doesn't work that way. Nix might not feel fear, but he surely is aware. He's aware that within the next few minutes, the delta will crumple up into a twisted blob of metal. 
He's aware that the atmosphere will pop out of it faster than a bullet from a gun. Nix doesn't need air or pressure or any of that to survive, so he may even survive as the station breaks up around him. Maybe he'll survive the fireworks. His skin can survive the vacuum, after all. Maybe he'll get to feel the fresh air before he falls into the ocean. A sudden burst from the delta jolts me out of my wild thoughts and back into the present. Like splinters flying out of a piece of wood that's been snapped in half, the solar panels which lined both sides of the truss structure fly off into all directions, scattering more light my way. I see the truss has broken completely in half, and the primary engine, the one that left me high and dry only a few months ago, is now lulling about, totally separate from the main structure of the delta. The entire structure has gone into a wicked spin. I see the G, my garden, my life. It's now flopping around the station as it tumbles head over heels. As I watch it tumble, I think of New. What would she have thought if she could have seen this? Her home, her life's work, the reason she lived and the others died, now flipping around uncontrollably, flailing through the dense atmosphere. Suddenly, a bright light flares in the window. One of the massive solar panels has just smacked into the atmosphere, flaring up and disintegrating in less than two seconds. The atmosphere doesn't begin right in one spot. It's a gradual, funky sort of barrier. It has waves in it, some taller and thicker than others, all waiting to bring you into their fold. That's when I realize my own spacecraft is feeling a bit like it's on an ocean, bumping about slightly. I check my altitude. I'm 85 kilometers above the surface. The comm link buzzes to life in my ear. Ida, are you watching it? Ale asks. Yes, I say. It's beautiful. Tears have sprung up in my eyes, and my vision starts to cloud. I clear my throat and shut my eyes in an attempt to focus. I face forward and leave the delta to it. For some reason, I don't want to watch it anymore. It's time for me to look ahead. Ida, listen to me. You're going to start your own reentry very soon. I won't be able to contact you through the blackout portion of the fall. We're at one minute until expected loss of signal. But you'll be perfect, Ida. I have no doubts. I'll be perfect, I repeat. I don't know if that's true. I'm only repeating his words because they sounded so sweet coming into my ear from his beautiful voice. They don't sound as great when I say them, though. My voice is soft and nasally. His is deep and broad and full of warmth. Ida, he pauses, and I wonder if the radio is cutting out. But when he comes back on, I can hear that it's his voice that's catching, almost like he's choking something back. I need you to make it down here, Ida. I need you to make it through this. Do you understand that? I nod my head. I know he can't see it, but it's all I can do. I have no words to ease his pain or make this easier on him. It's just that, well, he continues again, choking on the words. If it gets to be too much for you up there, the gravity, I mean, then close your eyes, okay? He sounds desperate. Close your eyes and, and count your numbers. Think about beautiful things like sand on the beaches or, or needles on a pine tree. Think about dogs and birds and butterflies. I don't know. Think about whatever you need to push through, okay? I mean it, Ida. You must survive. If you have to, 
go deep inside yourself to do it, okay? Do you understand? Tell me you understand. I do, I say in a whisper. And I do understand. I know exactly what he's asking me to do. The odds of this old spacecraft making it through reentry are slim, probably lower than anyone at NASA would ever share with me. But he's holding out every last ounce of hope in his soul, and he's asking me to do the same. Good, he says. Ten seconds to expected signal loss. Ale, I say. Yes, he asks. I'll think of you, I say. Five seconds until signal loss, Ida. You've got this, and I'll be here. I'll be there with you. I'll be waiting, he says. With a crackle, the radio signal cuts out, and silence takes over. Chapter 53 Now, I wait. I feel the ship bumping around beneath me. It feels like what I would imagine a roller coaster might feel like, right at the moment the coaster car creeps over the top of the first drop. After the comm link cut out, there were several, several seconds of pure, complete silence. But now, I hear a rumbling all around me. It's getting louder and deeper. Suddenly, I see flames shoot past the windows on both sides of me. The windows are starting to burn, slowly at first, then before I know it, they're glowing orange. As each second passes, they get darker, turning from bright red to deep crimson to almost black, like the color of blood. I feel like I'm inside the head of a dragon, and the windows of the Soyuz are its two black, fiery eyes looking out over the world. I've been so preoccupied with the fire in the windows that I've forgotten about the rest of my body. Gravity is starting to pull. Hard. I feel it deep in my gut. There's the feeling of a taut string pulling my spine down right in the center of my chair. I take this moment to tighten up the belts, holding me to the seat. Ali told me to do that when gravity started to take hold. It does no good to tighten them when you're still in space because you can't get a good grip on the seat with your body. But now my body is firmly rooted to the seat and the belts tighten easily. With each second that passes, the gravity pulls harder. It no longer feels like strings, but rather like I'm covered in big straps, pulling me tighter and tighter into the chair. I can't lift my head. It feels like it's bolted down. The altimeter in front of me says I'm at 68 kilometers above the surface. The Soyuz is spinning. This realization comes to me suddenly. It's spinning to my right, counterclockwise. I hadn't noticed it before, but now that the gravity is biting down hard, I can feel the spin. I don't think it's supposed to spin like this. Not this fast. The fire surrounds the ship and heat comes at me in waves. I've never felt heat this intense. Sweat drips down the side of my forehead and cheeks. My lungs won't inflate. I struggle to pull in the thick, hot air from inside the cabin. I see the control panel in front of me with all its technical screens and switches. But I couldn't reach it even if I wanted to. My arms are bolted to my side, and they feel like they'll never move again. My bones start to give way. My poor, brittle bones are crumbling under my skin. The pain is intense. I close my eyes, and my escape comes quickly. Instead of looking for the numbers like I usually do, I picture a beach. 
I'm surrounded by dusty yellow sand, and ahead of me the water flows in loose, frothy waves. The sun is setting all big and burnt orange in the sky. I see Ale standing in the tide. He's been waiting for me here. He holds out his hand and smiles. Chapter 54 The girl tumbled through the atmosphere as fast as a bullet from a gun. The gravitational pull from such a fall was much stronger than she could have imagined. Her lips fell to the sides of her mouth, exposing her teeth and giving her an odd grin. As she'd been instructed, she clamped her teeth shut to avoid accidentally biting her tongue. This precaution, as it turned out, wasn't necessary. Her tongue slipped back in her mouth and coiled at the base of her throat, nowhere near her teeth. At 60 kilometers above the surface, the gravitational forces were six times that of those felt on the ground, or 36 times the highest gravity the girl had ever known. The Soyuz spacecraft was designed to keep its occupants awake by positioning them face up, with their backs facing the Earth during reentry. As the blood in the body gains weight, it pools in places it shouldn't. If an astronaut were to sit up during reentry, they would undoubtedly pass out because their heart couldn't push the blood up to their head through the strong gravitational pull. Their feet would balloon with the now thickened blood, trapping most of it in the lower half of the body. A normal Soyuz passenger would feel plenty of gravity, but would remain awake and alert during their descent. The girl on board Soyuz MV-49 was not so lucky. At 52 kilometers above the surface, she lost consciousness. Her seat was not fitted to her body as it would have been if she were a normal astronaut. Because of the ill-fitting seat, her body pressed against the restraints on her sides in an unnatural way. As the capsule spun, the pain inside of her body worsened. Fortunately, the girl was unconscious when the number eight and number nine ribs on her right side cracked nearly in half under the force of the straps digging into them. As she dreamed, she could sense the pain. She knew that something was bothering her, but she couldn't quite understand it as she escaped further and further into her own mind. The capsule continued on a sharp trajectory, down, 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 spinning all the while as the Earth's atmosphere forced it to slow down. The gravitational forces topped out at a stunning eight times the gravitational pull that one experiences on the Earth's surface. Eight minutes after reentry began, the first of two sets of parachutes deployed from the aged spacecraft. The girl continued to sleep. The first chute caught the wind and pulled up so sharply on the craft she experienced a split second of zero gravity before crashing down to the end of the rope. It held, and the craft slowed further. At five kilometers above the surface, the heat shield, jettisoned from the bottom of the capsule, falling to the desert below. The decreased weight caused the capsule to slow more, swaying gently beneath the huge purple parachutes above it. Had she been awake, the girl would have seen the helicopter standing by outside the craft, waiting for her arrival. But she continued to dream. The pressure on her broken ribs eased as the spacecraft slowed and the heavy gravitational forces relaxed. Her heart thudded in her chest, working harder than it ever had to pump her blood. Her brain wavered in and out of oxygen deprivation as her lungs struggled to suck air. 
The veins in her legs and arms strained under the new weight of her blood, and Minnie popped because of the pressure. Her eyes sank heavily into her skull, putting pressure on her optic nerves. Had she been awake, she wouldn't have been able to see. The second set of parachutes exploded from the craft. These chutes were red, and they could easily be seen from the ground a mere 20,000 meters below. If she'd been awake, the girl would have heard the loud push of air as they let loose from their holding tanks, and then she would have felt a sudden jerk as the capsule slowed further. Inside, it was quiet, except for her breathing, light and fluttery. Shortly before the capsule touched the ground, six retro rockets fired violently into the red dirt of the New Mexico desert in an effort to slow the spacecraft even more. The girl's seat raised up on shock absorbers to help lessen the blow as the capsule touched down on the surface. If she had been conscious, it would have felt like a truck ramming into her body from beneath. After touchdown, there was total silence. The girl on the Soyuz had one important job after landing. She was supposed to release the parachutes by pulling down on a ripcord in the control panel above her cutting them free from the spacecraft so they wouldn't drag it around in case of high winds. But she continued to sleep and did not complete this task. The parachutes remained attached, and the wind howled outside the burnt windows of the Soyuz. All remained quiet for a few moments, and then the capsule started to move, rumbling and shaking in the wind. One big gust tipped it onto its side, the next gust sent it tumbling down a small scrub-covered dune, the parachutes tugging it further into the desert. And still, the girl slept. Had she been awake, she would have felt the seat restraints digging into her side with each tumble of the Soyuz, forcing her broken ribs further and further into the soft tissue of her lungs. Chapter 55 it's amazing what you miss when you can't wake up. The last thing I remember before passing out was the blood-red color of the capsule windows. That and the gravity. I remember trying to keep my lips closed, and I physically couldn't pull them up around my teeth. Then it all went black, and I was on the beach with Ale. I didn't wake up again until three days later, according to Tess, who's been here with me since the landing. She tells me that after I landed, the parachutes got caught by the wind. The rescue crew wasn't able to get to the capsule until 25 minutes after it landed, because it went on a violent roll through the desert. Tess said it looked like a blackened ping-pong ball, rolling and bouncing over the dunes. They hadn't told me this before I left the Delta, but the wind was gusting over 40 kilometers per hour on the ground. They knew this was a possibility, but they didn't want me worrying about it. Turns out that, of all the things that could have gone wrong, it was the wind that ended up almost killing me. The Soyuz, a true workhorse, performed exactly as it was supposed to. Even the spinning I felt during descent was supposed to happen to keep it more stable in the reentry corridor during a ballistic reentry. I have pictures of the spot where the capsule came to rest. It was in a small valley between two hills. The rescue crew had to wait until the Soyuz quit rolling before it was safe to cut the parachute cables. They found me crumpled in my seat, covered in blood and vomit. There are pictures of this, too, but I don't have the nerve to look at them. I landed in the southeast corner of the Navajo Nation Reserve, 
near a small town called Standing Rock and was immediately taken to a NASA research hospital outside of Albuquerque. The surgery took 12 hours. They repaired my punctured lungs, put pins and support in the broken ribs. They also repaired my shattered pelvis and left femur. Tess tells me it's a miracle I made it. With the intense gravity in my fragile body, could have been a lot worse. She believes that since I've been exercising in limited gravity all my life and subsisting on a plant-based diet, my body was healthy enough to withstand the forces. I survived, and that seems to surprise her. But it doesn't surprise me. I was with Ale. As soon as it became too much, I did exactly what he told me to do. I retreated into my mind and found him there, waiting for me with open arms. That's why I survived. Of course, I needed the soyuz to do its job too, which it did, but I believe it was his presence that got me here alive. They kept me in a medically induced coma for three days after surgery. When I finally lifted my heavy eyelids, I was only able to keep them open for a few seconds before the weight of sleep and gravity closed them again. But before they closed on me, I saw Tess sitting on a stool in the corner of the room. I had never seen Tess before, so I didn't know it was her for sure. But somehow I did kind of know. She looked pretty much like I imagined her, with curly red hair cropped just below her skin. She wore a beige turtleneck dress and sat with her legs crossed. It was her face that I remember most. I must have made a noise when I woke because she immediately looked my way and the look on her face was pure joy. A huge smile spread across her lips, and her green eyes brightened. Just as soon as I got a glimpse of her, I was out again. As I said, you miss a lot when you can't wake up. Every time I would fight my way out of the heavy fog of sleep, I would open my eyelids, and the weight of them would pull me back down into the cloud. The longer I laid there, the more often my body tried to wake, and the more I tried, the longer I could keep my eyelids open. So that's how it started. That's how I started to win my battle against gravity. With my eyelids. The other parts of my body were so heavy, they wouldn't budge a centimeter if I tried to move them. But I could move my eyelids. I would try to keep my eyes open one second at a time. Before long, I could last 15 seconds, then 30 seconds. After a few days, I could keep them open for a whole minute, then two minutes, then five minutes. Eventually, I could keep them open long enough to observe the room around me. It was a small white room. The walls were white, the ceiling was white, the furniture was white, the bed where I lay was white. In the beginning, I couldn't see the floor, but I soon learned that it too was white. There was a white couch on the wall next to my bed, a white stool in the corner next to a little window. They kept the shades drawn for fear that the sun would hurt my eyes. The shades were white, too. Tess started talking to me a few days after I first opened my eyes. She told me how excited she was to see my beautiful face. She even cried once while she held my hand. I started to look for her every time I opened my eyes, and she was there every time. Eventually, I tried to lift my head. It felt like an elephant sat perched on top of my neck, and it wouldn't budge at first, but I kept trying. I also worked on my fingers and toes. Tess told me how important it was for me to start moving. When you've been without gravity, or with so little gravity, for as long as I have, you must start moving around or your body will never heal itself, she said. 
so I wiggled my fingers and toes. Then I lifted my hand a few centimeters. I was able to make more and more progress with each passing day. Gravity wasn't the only thing limiting me from moving. The pain from my shattered pelvis and leg was almost unbearable, and I had a difficult time breathing because of the punctured lungs. They kept me heavily medicated. It was around day seven when I asked the doctors to hold back on the pain meds. I didn't like the way they made me feel, foggy and frail and totally out of it. After they began to wean me off the medications, the nightmares started. I could feel the pain in my sleep, and it played games with my mind while I dreamed. Sometimes I felt like I would die from it, but eventually the pain started to relent. I kept telling myself if I just stood up to it for another minute, it would come back down, and soon that's what happened. After two full weeks in the hospital, I was able to stand up for the first time on the surface of the earth. I only lasted a few seconds before crumpling back down into my bed, but it felt amazing. I can't wait until I can run again. I hope to be able to leave this small white room soon and go somewhere with bigger windows and perhaps even some color on the walls. Maybe in the next few days, Tess says whenever I ask her. There's a knock on my door. Ida, there's someone here to see you. I hear Tess's voice from the other side. I'm still in the white room. Even the door is white. I've asked Tess several times now when they plan to move me from this room. She keeps telling me to have patience. I'm supposed to be sleeping, but I'm reading a book on my hollow screen instead. It's called The Color of Me, written by someone who survived the essay attack on Buenos Aires during the war. I know so little about the war, and I've essentially lived my whole life in the past. But now I'm living in the present, and I have access to everything that's come along since the Delta lost contact with Mission Control. I've got my work ahead of me to catch up. I'm awake, Tess. Come in, I say. She steps through the door. Today's outfit is a blue-striped pantsuit, and she has her red hair pulled back behind her ears. A man steps through the door behind her. Plenty of men come in and out of my room, doctors and nurses and physical therapists, but I've never seen this man before. He doesn't look like the rest of the NASA guys. They show up and peek in on me when they think I'm sleeping. I sometimes pretend to be just to see what they're up to. I've seen them jotting notes down on hollow screens and whispering to each other. They're always stiff, wearing crisp white shirts and blue ties under white lab coats. John Patrick, the administrator, came here one day. He introduced himself, and when he said the words, you might know me as the administrator of NASA, I got a strange feeling, something about the way he said the word administrator. It didn't sit right. It felt sharp and boastful as if this was something I should be impressed by. Like the others, he had a stiff, unnatural way about him. He wasn't wearing a lab coat, but his clothes were starched and impeccable. Rather than the typical blue tie worn by the other NASA guys, Patrick wore a red one, which I thought was interesting. He was only in my room for a brief moment to introduce himself before stepping out. I heard him outside the door speaking in hushed tones with Tess and another woman, who I believe was Jade. For some reason, I get the feeling I'm not being moved to a larger room because of Patrick. He's keeping me here for something, but I'm not sure yet what that is. The man standing in front of me now has his white shirt open at the neck with no tie. His sleeves are rolled up, showing tanned skin on his forearms. His left hand is in his pocket, 
while the other hangs casually at his side. His hair is short on the sides, with dark curls hanging over his forehead. His eyes are wide and dark brown. My breath catches in my throat, and the hollow screen falls out of my hands and into my lap. My eyes fail me and drop shut. I focus, and I force myself to work the muscles that keep them open. I want to see this man. When I manage to pry my eyes open again, he's still there, looking at me with his head cocked slightly to the side. He's so beautiful that my face crumples, and tears flow freely from my eyes. For once, I'm grateful for gravity that allows the tears to fall down my cheeks, keeping my eyes clear to see. He stands tall next to Tess. He's a good six inches on her. She smiles at him, but I only see her in the periphery of my vision. He takes up the entire screen in front of me, and everything else has faded into the white background behind him. I'll just step out and give you two a moment, Tess says, and she slowly closes the door behind her with a soft click. He has the strangest look on his face. It's not quite a smile, but it's not an unhappy expression. If I knew his face, which I don't because I've only seen it in my mind, but if I did, I might think he was going to cry too. The man moves toward me slowly, gently, then stops. I can tell he's not sure how he should approach. Maybe he's afraid that if he moves too quickly, he'll scare me or cause me pain. Come here, I say, my voice quiet but direct. He obeys and moves forward. He reaches the bed and drops down to squat next to it so his eyes are level with mine. He has not moved them from my face since he first entered the room. To my surprise, he puts his hands over his face, resting his elbows on the side of the bed, and begins to sob. No, please don't do that, I say. I want to see his face. He is more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. He looks up, his eyes red and watery, the sobs still choking in his throat, and he touches my arm. Then he moves both of his hands down to take my hand in his. His hands are solid and powerful, and his skin is dark and smooth. My hand looks like a child's compared to his, pale and fragile. He strokes the back of it gently with his fingers. Each touch sends pulses of blood up and down my arm. The feeling is so strange. I look down at my forearm, wondering if the skin might explode. He's still crying, and so am I. He puts my hand down on the bed and moves his right hand up to my left cheek. He cups it gently and runs his thumb across it, right under my eye. I let my head fall into my hand, knowing it will support me. Knowing he will support me. Ale, I say, you saved my life. Ale pulls his face close to mine. He's so close I can feel his breath. It smells like peppermint. Ida, he says, I have waited my whole life for you. There is so much I want to show you. Show me, Ale, I say. I want to see everything. I'd like to thank all my wonderful sci-fi fans for listening to this audio production of me reading my novel, The Station. 
I'm sad to see this particular book end, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there is another book coming. So stay tuned. Follow me on Instagram. Keep your eyes open on this podcast platform because I will be returning with The Surface very soon. Thank you again so much for your support. I appreciate each and every one of you. This is Rebecca J. Kelly, author of the novel, The Station. Thank you again for listening. Bye.